and it's great to be able to share God's Word with you. We're going to be looking at that story we've had read for us from 1 Samuel 17, so I hope you have a Bible open to study that. I guess it's a story which is quite familiar uh, to most people. If you uh, went to Sunday school as a child or if you were brought up in a home where they read the Bible, uh, then it will be a story that's quite familiar uh, to you in terms of the basic outline of what happens, that the big chap is the one who gets killed. I'm sorry uh, to give away the the, uh, punchline, but that, in fact, uh, has uh, already been read, so uh, there is no surprise there. But in fact, it's one of those things that, as a story, is not so well known in terms of the actual detail. Yes, the key point that Goliath gets killed is known, but what about the rest? When was the last time you looked at a children's Bible that told you about the cheese, for instance? Well, they just tend to miss that out, don't they? And so one of the issues we have with Bible stories, and particularly Bible stories like this that seem to be well known, is that the version in which they're well known in our minds sometimes has details that aren't actually in the text, and the other issue is that sometimes there are details in the text that we don't actually know. So take a story like the story of the prodigal son, and all sorts of versions of the story will tell you exactly what he did when he went away and wasted his money, when the story doesn't tell you. Because there are lots of ways of wasting lives, and they're not very edifying, and so the story doesn't tell you that, but it tells you lots of other things, you see? So one of the things we've got to do in making sure that we read Bible stories, read God's Word properly, is we've got to make sure that we understand the details that are there and don't and know what's not there. Well, there was my uh, initial rant. Uh, I'll try and be more edifying after that. Now, <clears throat> let's consider the context of this. The context of this is that God's people are in the promised land and they've been ruled over in the promised land by judges for a number of years and after that they've asked for a king. And the first king they have is Saul and Saul is tall. And so he is externally impressive and he's the man uh, that uh, God uh, has uh, nominated after their request that they should have a king. Of course it would have been better if they hadn't asked for a king but uh, they did that. And at this time, their enemies are the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are, are just really in what's something like the Gaza Strip nowadays, uh, very approximately, on the southwest of Israel. But here the Philistines have come in and they have invaded the territory of the Israelites. In fact, they're in the territory of the tribe of Judah, which is David's own tribe. And we have a man of the Philistines called Goliath who's over nine feet tall now last time I looked at the Guinness Book of Records I don't look at it very often the tallest person in the world or um, uh, most recently documented was Robert Pershing Wadlow at eight foot eleven point one so this is a very tall person on that on its own that is something that would make you fear he's also someone with immense military experience and he's also someone very well equipped and so we hear about his armor He has a helmet, he has leg armour, he has body armour. His helmet is, of course, of the usual metal of the time, which is bronze. If the story had been made up a lot later, they would almost certainly have made his his, um, uh, helmet out of iron. But there are many traits like this which uh, tell us that the story is something that's authentic. The geography is real, even the shape of Goliath's name fits with what we know about Philistine names of the time. There are lots of things like that which tell you, no, this is not a story which is made up a lot later. But he also has on him an armour of a specially flexible kind. 
so it's something which is going to provide very good flexibility. Now, is there anyone here, uh, perhaps a lady, who would confess to being nine stone? Uh, any, anyone? Uh, no, I'm sure there's no one who's nine stone. Is there? Of course, there are many ladies here who are nine stone or thereabouts um, uh, this morning. Uh, and, and that's the weight of the armor that he has on his body. So the question is, how would you pierce through that in order to be able to strike him? And then he also has offensive weapons. He has at least three. We learn of his sword later on. But the thing that's probably most terrifying is his spear, because his spear gives him an ability to strike at a distance. It's described as having uh, something, a shaft like a weaver's beam. In other words, you think of a weaver's beam with a uh, uh, thread round it or whatever weavers have, things they weave with. I presume it's thread. Um, and what you have is that's something a bit like what you see on uh, Greek jars, uh, pottery, where uh, someone with a javelin will have some string there to make a loop, to make, put his finger in, so that he can cast the javelin further and more accurately. In other words, this is something that enables you to strike at a distance. What's more, it has a tip out of that specially hard material, iron, which is about seven kilos in weight. Sorry to mix imperial and metric. You can look at the footnotes and, and work out what exactly that is. Now, just think about seven kilograms of iron coming towards you. Whatever armor you're wearing is just going to be pierced straight through. Uh, it's going to knock you straight to the ground. So in other words, this is a person with truly terrifying weapons. And for backup, he's got some, you know, his javelin on his back as well. So in other words, before him, you are incredibly exposed. You probably wouldn't even get to hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now, of course, someone as well-armed as that can't be expected to carry everything. And so in addition, we have a shield-bearer who went before him. Now, it'd be possible to think of this as like an armor-bearer uh, who was like, like maybe a nurse helping a surgeon, handing them the tools at the key point they want. No, because if it was an armor-bearer, they would be at the side or at the back, uh, not in front. This is someone with a full-size shield. There are two words for shield in Hebrew. This is the big one. He's standing in front to protect the whole of Goliath's body. So he's got his armor, he's got his long-distance offensive weapons, he's very big, he's got someone in front of him. How on earth are you going to attack him? You see, it would be something that, you know, would be quite frightening, let's say. He seems utterly unbeatable. And so he challenges Israel to find someone who can fight him in single combat. The prize is very simple. The losing side will serve the other side. But he puts the challenge with such, such confidence. It's pretty clear that he thinks that it's only possible that Israel would lose. His confidence is such that he defies Israel. There is no way you can find anyone to fight me. And then we have a change of scene. We're reminded about David, the youngest son of an old man named Jesse. You'd learned about him in the chapter before and how he had been anointed. That means uh, um, he had had uh, oil put on him, uh, symbolizing God's uh, presence on him. He'd been anointed by the prophet Samuel and told that he was going to be king of Israel one day. And at that time, it also says that the Spirit of God had left Saul, the king, and had gone on to David. And straight after the Spirit of God had come on David, 
he suddenly had a, an amazing career breakthrough. He'd been looking after sheep, which is a pretty lowly job. It's the sort of thing you'd hand out to the younger brother. And then he suddenly found part-time employment as court musician. What an amazing opportunity. Of all of the places you might want to perform, if you're a musician, surely the royal court is the best one. And so he works as harpist in Saul's court. And chapter 17, verse 15, explains how he flitted between these two jobs, sometimes uh, looking after the sheep, sometimes as court musician. But at this stage, he's now back looking after the sheep, while David's three eldest brothers are the ones chosen to go off uh, into the army with Saul. So while David's been looking after uh, the sheep uh, for 40 days, uh, the Philistine has been threatening God's flock for that time. And at this very moment, David's old father, Jesse, makes a decision that he's going to send his youngest son to send some gifts to the older brothers. How nice uh, that is to do that. But I guess they, uh, Jesse could have sent other people instead. Uh, it makes it quite clear that there were other people he could send. But in God's sovereign purposes, David is the one person he does send. And as a result of his choice, we get what follows. Firstly, Jesse is going to send uh, some food. Well, he's going to send for the brothers roasted grain. Mmm. Well, that's really great, isn't it? Of course, it's, it's a very good basic food. I'm, I'm sure lots of calories in it. Um, not exactly delicious, but it would last. And it, the sort of thing one might want when one was um, uh, fighting. And, and ten loaves of bread. But for the commander of the uh, section, ten cheeses. So that, you know, the commander gets the really nice thing. Of course, Jesse had flocks. And getting some uh, cheese was a pretty easy thing for him. So... A lowly gift for the brothers, but a really nice gift for the commanding officer. No doubt trying to gain favor. <clears throat> but when we see uh, David arrive, we see that he hands over these gifts. But it, it's not simply that the two um, armies are on uh, hills facing each other. Actually, day after day, they've been fighting. They don't want to give up their vantage points. They uh, um, have sorties. They uh, go out and they fight. And David arrives just when the troops are going out for battle. He runs straight towards the battle line and then finds his brothers. The battle lines haven't yet met. And so it's still impossible to have a conversation with them. Goliath, at that point, comes out for his morning rant. And instantly, the people of Israel who are around uh, Goliath fall into disarray. Perhaps they've been getting closer, but they don't want to get any closer to him. They flee terrified. People say to David, have you seen this man? Do you see the reproach he's bringing on Israel? Do you know the amazing reward? The amazing reward, what, money? You're going to get married into the royal family? Commoners marrying into the royal family. Pretty amazing thing, isn't it? Marry the king's daughter. And exemption from taxes in Israel, not just for you, but for your father's house, your brothers. What an amazing thing to have. Well... David inquires about the reward. He asks someone else, is that really the reward for someone who takes away the reproach from Israel? Of course, he's interested in the reward, but he's also much more interested in removing the reproach of the living God, the reproach on the living God. And he reveals his own perspective. People say, have you seen this man? David says, who does he think he is? Listen to this. 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's a pretty different perspective, isn't it? You see, one set of people have looked at Goliath. They've seen everything. It looks so impressive. They think, how could we possibly beat him? Have you seen this man? And David said, who does he think he is? He's uncircumcised. He's a Philistine. He's insignificant except for any value that God puts him. He's not scary. No. Who does he think he is? At this point, Eliab, the eldest brother, hears that David's been asking about the reward and is extremely annoyed. Why are you here? Who's looking after the sheep? Actually, the story has told you that they're with a keeper in verse 20. And then Eliab says, I know your heart. Uh, You have come to watch the battle. Well, actually, Eliab, you've been doing quite a bit of watching over the last 40 days, haven't you? Um, But anyway, uh, he no doubt would have known that David had been anointed and that Samuel had said he was going to be king. But clearly he despises the fact. Perhaps he even feels threatened as older brother, that his youngest brother, the one who looks after the sheep, should be anointed. But in the previous chapter, we read how Samuel went to anoint one of Jesse's sons, not being told which one it was. And when the first son had arrived, Samuel, the man of God, looked at him and he thought, that must be the man because he was so externally impressive. And God said to Samuel, no, don't regard the outward appearance. God looks upon the heart. And Eliab, the man whose heart God had looked on and said, that heart is not right, says to his little brother, I know your heart. When the problem was not with David's heart, it was with his own heart. And I think this really applies to us. Do you ever feel envious of someone who's doing better than you? Envious maybe of someone younger who surpasses you in what they achieve? Or envious of someone who gets more credit or recognition for the service they do? Who gets looked after better by people than you do? Well, in that situation, it's very easy to imagine something about their heart, to attribute to them sins, when actually the problem is just our own heart. That's exactly, by the way, what the older brother does in the, in the story of, of the two uh, sons, um, the, the, the prodigal son and the older brother, who attributes to the, the younger son all of the sins that, of course, he would like to have committed himself. David replies that he's only just having a conversation. He turns around for a third opinion on the reality of the reward. Two or three witnesses is a good way to proceed, as the Bible says. And word naturally spreads that someone is inquiring about the reward. That's pretty unusual, and so the king gets to hear. David comes in before the king, and David starts up the conversation. Let no one be afraid. I am your servant, king, and I will deal with this man. I will go and fight him. Now, when there's a source of fear, often our response to fear is simply this. We need to remove the source of fear and then we don't need to be afraid anymore. The interesting thing here is that David says, let no one be afraid before the Philistine has been killed, before the source of fear has been taken away. In other words, now, even though this problem is current, let no one be afraid. I am going to fight this Philistine. 
Saul says that he's not able to. He's simply too young and inexperienced to fight, whereas Goliath has years of military experience. To this, David replies about his own experience. As a shepherd of a flock that has been attacked by at least one lion and at least one bear who took off a lamb. David's approach was rather unusual. It would be one thing to try and scare off a lion, you know, try and shout and wave your stick or something like that to make sure it doesn't come. David actually gave chase. Gave chase to a lion. Now, I have to say, and it might be my literary ignorance, but I don't know of any other story in history or fiction in which a single human chases a lion. I don't know the Tarzan films very well, but I doubt if even he would have chased a lion. Maybe you know it and you can find me the episode. I'd be interested to watch. I don't know of one where humans chase a bear. One human on one bear and you decide to chase. There are plenty of stories maybe where crowds would chase a lion, where crowds might chase a bear. But imagine the reckless bravery of one human going after one lion or one bear. Well, he lays out his approach in verse 35. While the beast still had the lamb in its mouth, he would strike it, perhaps with a stick. That would mean, of course, it would drop the lamb and uh, it would turn on him with its mouth now nicely freed up. Uh, And then he would engage it in close combat. It's like this. If you want the the method, you take hold of the beast's hair and then you strike it. And uh, want to know how to do it, uh, that's what he would do, and kill it. Well, it's a rather huge risk, isn't it, to rescue a lamb, don't you think? A little lamb. But you know, the Bible tells us that the good shepherd, John's gospel, Jesus, lays down his life for the sheep. Well, okay, David didn't lay down his life here, but he was prepared to risk his life for that lamb. And it's a reminder for anyone with pastoral or shepherding responsibility of the true cost of putting the safety of others first. I certainly would be inclined to think, it'd be better to think big picture, wouldn't it really? Be far more strategic for the general safety of the flock to make sure the shepherd stays alive, wouldn't it? Uh, So, you know, well, okay, I'm going to lose one lamb. Maybe it would have died anyway. Sometimes lambs do die of cold. And, you know, it already been bitten so you know maybe it's not going to live um surely it's far more strategic for me to take the big picture and guard the whole flock than to go after the one sheep and have it taken off but that does not seem to be the biblical model of a shepherd the biblical model of the shepherd in john's gospel jesus says i haven't lost one that's quite a weight isn't it Better ask for God's help with that, haven't we? Not to lose one. And David explains how this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like the lion and the bear because he has dared to defy the armies of the living God. And in all of this, David doesn't attribute his victory over the lion and the bear to his own skill. Rather, he attributes it to the fact that God kept the hand, the poor of the lion or the bear away from him and therefore he's going to keep the paw or the hand it's the same word of that philistine away and so 
Saul sends David, hoping that God will be with him, which, of course, he is. Then we come to the famous incident where David tries on Saul's armor, which is similar to Goliath, but not really quite as impressive, is it? Now, in the Sunday school version of the story, sometimes you get David portrayed as just a very small child trying on a huge suit of armor, hopelessly too big for him. But when we read the text, it seems that what's actually going on is that he refuses the armor because he hadn't tested it. What, for me, is interesting about this is not the actual size of the armor, but the fact that it shows that David had not settled in his mind at this point how he was going to defeat the Philistine. You see? He knew that God was calling him to fight the Philistine, but he didn't know exactly how he should do it. He knew that God would help him. But David takes Saul's armor off, and he takes his staff and five smooth stones from his bag and, of course, his sling. The fact that he takes five stones and a stick too, which he is not going to use, again shows that he does not know necessarily how he's going to uh, a fight. He doesn't know necessarily that the first shot is going to work, and he doesn't know necessarily he isn't going to get into close combat with Goliath. But whatever happens, he is confident in God. And so, in a very short time after he's arrived, probably even before he's had time to deliver the cheese and the roasted grain, David is going out to fight the Philistine. It may only have been really a sermon's length between when he arrived and when he goes to fight. After all, Goliath is still ranting. And there we have in verse 41, Goliath still in his position. The Philistine comes forward, still protected by his shield bearer, and he sees David and he despised him. Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Goliath, it's not the stick you need to be worried about. (laughs) But whatever it happens, he doesn't seem to care for or take notice of the fact that David has a sling. And there Goliath curses David by his gods. Come to me and I will feed your body to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. No doubt he was on a battlefield which was covered with the carcasses of those who were slain, unburied. No doubt there were carrion uh, feeding birds and so on there. And in that context, Goliath makes his threat. Perhaps you can even smell it. Smell those bodies. But David replies with words that are stronger still. He says, you come to me with human weapons. My weapon is God's name. Not the sling even. God's name. You see, it's his zeal for God's name which assures him of victory. You have insulted God's name, and for the sake of that name, I am going forth. What's more, I'm going to tell you some more things. God's going to give you to me, and I'm going to cut off your head, and not just your body, but the bodies of the entire army of the Philistines are going to be fed on by the birds and by the animals. They don't normally put that in a children's story either. Why? So that all people may know that there is one true God and that he has chosen Israel and the battle belongs to him, not to you. David quickly moves closer to danger. One strike of that spear and he'd almost certainly be dead. His hand goes into his bag. He draws out the stone. He aims and God guides it to that very small but crucially unprotected point on Goliath's forehead. 
The weight of the stone doesn't knock Goliath back. In fact, he falls forward, just like the Philistine god Dagon had in chapter 5 of this same book. David has no sword, so he uses his Goliath's own sword to remove his head. Sudden panic strikes the Philistines. They flee, they're chased, they're falling everywhere, and no doubt they will be fed on, and Israel plunders their camp. The chapter closes, reminding us how in all this haste, as for David to go out and fight the Philistine, Saul had forgotten the name of David's father, and uh, whose house, of course, was going to be made free from taxes, and uh, the family was going to intermarry, so it's a pretty important thing. So three times that question comes up, who, whose father are you? I, I, it's hard to imagine David coming in with the head of the Philistine, and um, Saul doesn't say, that was a great shot, or well done. It's, you know, uh, can you tell me your father's name? But anyway, the vital information is now established, and that is the end of the story. Well, I guess it's a story that's pretty familiar to many of us. What do we learn from it? Well, I want to suggest three key things that we learn from this story. Many of the themes you could find elsewhere in the Bible, uh, but here, of course, there is the thing that one human plus God can overcome any hurdle. But that's not what I, what I want to focus on as a first point. The first point is this, that Goliath doesn't just stand for problems generally in life. Goliath stands for challenges to the honor of God's name. And the point is one human plus God acting for the honor of God's name, God is going to bless. And we can go out with great confidence because we know we absolutely know that God wants his name to be honored. So let's think about those things that dishonor God's name. Just like Goliath dishonored God's name. It was a reproach on God's name that no one was fighting him. That he could say that Israel was so weak. And to think that he had all the power. Are there things that are a reproach on God's name now? When God's name is glorious, hallowed and precious... What do people say? They associate Christianity with legalism or being out of date or with hypocrisy or lack of love or with division or scandal or not being of a sound mind. There are so many ways that God's name is dishonored. And we need to ask that God would honor his name. What does the Lord's Prayer say? That we should pray, hallowed be your name, which means may your name be held to be holy and special. So how is God's name dishonored amongst us, in our own lives, in our family, at our workplace? What steps of faith are we taking to take away reproaches from God's name? It's worth asking. We shouldn't, of course, start with things away from us. We need to start within. What areas in my heart? Are there which need to be put right? What ways in my life am I dishonoring God's name by the way I speak, by the way I act to those closest to me? But ultimately, there may be ways that we need to act on a more public stage. But we need to have a concern for God's name, not acting on our own, but to act with God because we know that God wants his name to be honored. So that's the first point. Secondly, we have the example of David's faith. David shows at several points his confidence in God, absolute confidence that God is going to have, give him victory. 
but how could he be so certain? I mean, isn't there a danger that you could sort of go out and try some venture for God and it's just not going to work out? I think of, of someone who um, uh, believed he was doing the right thing when he, he, he um, set up a, a church and after a while it didn't work out. So w- how can you have that confidence that God is wanting you to do a particular initiative? Well, here David is not acting by impulse. He's acting on the basis of what God has already said to him. You see, God has already said to him, he's been anointed, he is going to be king one day. Which means he knows that he cannot be killed before he becomes king. He also knows that it is his responsibility to lead the people of God. Therefore, he has very clear mandate from God that he needs to do this particular task. He knows God wants his name to be honoured. He knows he's the man who has to lead. And he knows he can't be killed until he's become king. Well, in that situation, of course you have to go and fight the Philistine. Do you see? So we need to say, what do we know God wants us to do? We need to go on the basis of what he has revealed to us. We need to have a confidence in the scriptures. You see, David had a confidence in what God had said. And that was the basis on which he went forward. That's the confidence we need to have when we go forward to act for God's name. We need to be absolutely sure that what we do can be based, properly based, on what God has revealed. And then we know God will give us the victory. But there's a third point that really comes home to me from this passage. You see, this passage teaches us a lot about outward appearance. In the previous chapter, as I've said, Saul, um, Samuel, the prophet, was sent to anoint one of Jesse's sons. <clears throat> and he was impressed by Eliab. And this is what we read, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But it's not the only time that people look at outward appearances. Saul looks at David and thinks he's only a boy. Eliab looks at David and thinks, he's only my little brother. Goliath looks at David and thinks, he's only a boy. They see a youth who can't fight. This passage challenges us to look at people with spiritual eyes. Even Jesse could give this commanding officer better treatment uh, than uh, other folk. When Goliath looks at David, he despises him. When David looks at Goliath, He again doesn't look at the outward appearance. He sees what truly matters and he is not impressed. So this passage challenges us as we think about other people. You see, in all walks of life, it's very easy to think about people as very important people, VIPs. Do you have have VIPs in your mind? People that you think of as more important than others. What if God isn't so impressed by such VIPs? What if he's more concerned about one little lamb? Think of the church here. Don't have to look round. Are there people here that you regard as more important than other people? Just think about it. Think of someone you maybe regard as particularly important in the church and someone you regard as less important. 
Well, does God see things that way? Who could be the little lamb that maybe people wouldn't care about? We need to see things with God's eyes. You see, you might think that that homebound person who's old doesn't matter very much. Well, they matter a lot to God. What's more, you might think, well, they're not doing very much spiritually. How do you know? Even them just being helpless could be doing a lot spiritually because it gives people an opportunity to have love developed in them, to reach out beyond their comfort zone. So in fact, someone just being helpless can be an immense cause of sanctification to other people. Do you see? So who are we to say who's important and who's not? We must not judge with our outward appearance. We need to follow God's values, and God's value is that he does not want anyone to be lost, none of the sheep to be lost. God looks at the heart. Of course, there were people in the Bible we could describe as VIPs, Joseph or Daniel. They were good men. There was nothing wrong with the fact that they had important roles that influenced many people. David became one too. But we do well to remember that often these people's finest moments were actually before they became VIPs. Quite striking, isn't it, when you think about their lives? So we shouldn't despise people because they have a public role. We should honor those who are leaders. The Bible tells us that very clearly. But when we start thinking of one person especially important and other people as insignificant, we're losing a very key thing that comes through this passage and the previous one. And when we think about the importance of uh, stepping forward, following God, we realize that this was not the very first fight that David had. It was not at the beginning of his career uh, that he had this fight. When he became a VIP, if you like, after having done this fight, it was because previously he had already won unseen battles, dangerous victories for a very small reward. He had risked all to go after that lamb for what looked like very little gain. If you do aspire for leadership, aspire to help others in that way, and it is something to which it's right to aspire in certain situations, you need to have won unseen battles in the sanctification in your own life where you have put to death sin in a way that no one will have noticed. You'll get no praise for it. But you have to start with those battles first before you can go on to other more public battles. Finally, I think this passage teaches us about the cross. And it teaches us about the cross, really, by contrast. Here, very clearly, in Goliath, we have a picture of how the world thinks of the strength. It thinks of overcoming by strength. And our Lord Jesus Christ overcame and conquered in great weakness. Who would think that someone suffering such a shameful death as death on a cross 
could be actually at that point winning such a great victory through paying the price for sin. But that is what our Lord Jesus Christ did. In weakness. And yet, if you don't see things with God's eyes, you might look at the cross and think, what's that? You see, God doesn't look as man looks. And God also doesn't show as man shows. You see, humans, if they wanted to show power, would show it like Goliath shows power. When God wanted to display his power at its greatest, he sent Lord Jesus Christ to the cross to suffer and die in our place. What an amazing way to show power. My friend, if you're not a Christian believer here this morning, I would urge you to think about the God that a passage like this and the, passage and the whole Bible reveals. This is not a God who overwhelms with power, though he can overwhelm, but this is a God who has shown his love for you in great weakness. That, to me, is a God you could think about really understanding the difficulties of life. And this is a God who hasn't just shown his strength in weakness, but in that weakness, on the cross, he actually took away the power and the penalty that I deserve for every wrong thing I've done. Now, you don't know me well, so you don't know my heart. I know my heart a little bit, and it, it's not nice. God knows it even more, and he knows how much the sin is. But the great thing is, God doesn't look at the way we look. And God has made it so that if we trust in Christ, our sins are taken away, and our record is made such that when God looks at our hearts, he sees no sin. He actually sees the record of Jesus Christ. And that's an amazing thing. It's a great exchange that takes place. So whatever bad things we've done, whatever bad things we thought, we can know that God looks at us and he doesn't see any of that. He sees the record of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, God doesn't see the way we see. That is really good news because that means he can look at a group of people with all sorts of problems and say, those are my lovely sheep. Those are the ones I give my life for. Those are the ones I save. And I look at them and they are beautiful. That's the way God sees. Hallelujah. Let's pray.